Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for the Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and the Denver Herald. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Black by Popular Demand, Changing the Way We View Art by Grace Thorburn. From Denverite, I'll be reading Jorge Zaldivar danced at his daughter's quinceañera after he nearly lost his family by Kevin Beatty. And Old Johnson and Wales Campus Dorms in South Park Hill are being turned into income-restricted housing by Kyle Harris. From the Denver Herald, I'll be reading The Power of One is Anything But Cliché by Jane Dvorak and Soil Health at Chatfield Farms by Rutger Myers. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from the Denver Herald. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Black by Popular Demand, Changing the Way We View Art by, by Grace Thorburn. Born and raised in Denver, Alessia Redwine aspires to become a successful art curator and artist. As she wraps up her junior year at the University of Colorado Boulder, her main focus lies within the medium of painting, but she also said she enjoys exploring mixed media. I started painting my freshman year of college and I haven't stopped since, Redwine stated. There is a misrepresentation of black women in the art industry. When black women are showcased, they are often shown as less than, Redwine said. As a 21-year-old, I feel like I'm still seeing a lot of lack of representation. So I'd say representation plays a big part in my art and just expressing myself unapologetically and not apologizing for taking up space and being who I am. Reframing artistic history to be more inclusive was a driving force in Redwine's first painting series tiled, titled Black by Popular Demand. Taking historical pieces like The Birth of Venus and Girl with a Pearl Earring, which center around what she referred to as the elegance of white women, Redwine's paintings are abstract renditions that represent the subjects as black women instead. Inspiration for her series struck while Redwine was attending an art history lecture. According to Redwine, she noticed the misrepresentation of black women in great historical works of art and observed that when they were featured in paintings, elegance and grace were often reserved for white models. Redwine uses art to process various feelings such as grief, liberation, and acceptance. While finding her voice as a black woman in America in spaces that are predominantly white, she is also in the process of finding her artistic voice. My purpose is figuring out how to create work I've always wanted to see growing up. I think representation is so important, and growing up I didn't see enough representation, Redwine said. I went to a predominantly white high school, and now I go to a predominantly white university. My paintings focus on the experience of a black woman in places that aren't normally diverse. I like to focus on the perspective of black people and women more specifically. People in Redwine's life have inspired her work. This includes her family and the artists she looks up to. Long Beach-based artist Torin Ashton, 
Vincent van Gogh and Winslow Homer are all Redwine's primary artistic influences. Redwine describes Homer's work as what I want to be as an artist. He has a really good way of showing joy. Redwine said she hopes to own an art gallery where she can showcase her work while also emphasizing the work of other BIPOC artists. According to Redwine, she hopes that as she grows as an artist, her work will continue to reflect and shine a light on the uplifting aspects of being a black woman. Aphrodite, 2021, is the first piece in Redwine's series, Black by Popular Demand. It's a rendition of Birth of Venus, 1486, by Sandro Botticelli. I was inspired by Ebony Davis's January 2020 Essence magazine photoshoot, said Redwine. I purposely changed the pose of Aphrodite's body so she would embody confidence with her arms stretched at her side rather than covering her body with shame. The next two articles are from Denverite. Jorge Zaldivar danced at his daughter's quinceañera after he nearly lost his family, by Kevin Beatty. Jorge Zaldivar fretted over the buffet table as guests began to arrive. Christina, his wife, told him to relax, but he kept fiddling with the food. They'd spent the morning getting their daughter, Anani, into her fluffy pink quinceañera dress. It was time to celebrate her birthday, but he needed things to be perfect. After all, up until a few months ago, there was a chance he wouldn't be here for the big day at all. Jorge was undocumented when he drove into a guardrail more than 10 years ago. The incident put him in the crosshairs of federal immigration officials who worked to have him deported after the accident. It took more than a decade for his case to conclude, casting a cloud of fear over his family as they built their lives together. As they made a home and raised their kids, they had to contend with the very real possibility he'd be removed from the U.S. and sent to Mexico, a place he'd long ago left to pursue better fortunes. Then, in 2020, it finally happened. Jorge was forced to leave the country, and Cristina was left to manage by herself. But Jorge's future took an unlikely turn. After a series of court rulings related to technicalities in his case, Officials allowed him to return to the U.S. last October to face a judge one last time. Then, in March, his family heard the news. He'd clinched a very rare win, overturning his deportation and opening a pathway for legal permanent residency. His green card arrived in the mail just in time for Anani's party. It was a very beautiful dream to be at my daughter's birthday and with my family, he told us later in Spanish. For us, it's a new beginning. After celebrating so many milestones via video chat, the birthday was a piece of that new future. They could eat and drink and dance without the sinking feeling in the back of their minds that it could be all taken away. But the trauma from all those years worrying and fighting still remains. In this new beginning, they must reckon with the scars left from their battles with the U.S. immigration system. Healing will be a long road. Christina and Jorge bickered a bit as they finished setting up. Where is the gift table? Can you grab more chairs? Yes, I'm handling it. This is the kind of stress they expected from marriage. Normal nits that every couple deals with. But normal is tough to define these days, after so much has happened to their family. Normal is not a real word, Christina told us later, laughing and crying as she spoke. It's like starting to date all over again, you know. You can't just leave that stuff behind. 
She'd become an armchair immigration law expert as she and Jorge navigated their case. She was the one who traveled back and forth to Mexico after he left. She was the one who handled school and karate classes and the bills while he was away. They drained their savings to pay attorneys, and they'll be paying legal fees for a long while to come. The stress she felt in her body ate away at her, while her kids and her husband felt each of their own strains. Jorge's two years' absence was hard to comprehend. You are mourning, but you don't know why, because he's alive, and you don't know why you can't see him, she told us. It's the loss that you feel inside of you, and that's the hole that we have to patch up. Because you don't take somebody away like that and then expect, yep, there you go. The distance created rifts between them as they relied on texts and calls to stay in touch. Meanwhile, their kids settled into new routines, taking on new responsibilities to fill the void their father left. It was harder than they expected to go back to how things were once their legal battle concluded. That fight caused 18 years of hardship, of burden, of hurt and pain, Christina said. He wants to move forward, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be a process, but he just wants to be happy and try to let things go. She's been pushing Jorge to see a counselor. He's open to it, but asking for help can be difficult, too. We are going to need therapy, he said, because this process practically destroyed my marriage, my family. Christina said their task now is to close the Pandora's box that was forced open during their odyssey. Their family could still shatter, she told us, but they also honed their grit through the struggle. Our marriage is so strong, Jorge said, optimistic. Their kids have had an easier time bouncing back. They've been delighted to see both of their parents when they get home from school. While her parents work to close their wounds, Anani said she's found comfort in watching them fret over the mundane. It makes me feel good seeing everyone around the table eating and talking about their days, and my dad complaining about the grass, and it's just good to hear, she told us. We eat dinner, talk about our day, and it's just like, like you feel safe. With each new milestone, the family moves closer to being whole again for the first time in a very long time. Jorge hardly stopped working all night. As more guests poured in, he rolled tables across the room to accommodate them. As they ate and laughed and spilled things on the floor, he steered a mop bucket into the crowd to clean up. But then it was time to dance with his daughter. Jorge stood in the middle of the dance floor, staying put for the first time that evening, as Anani waited for her moment to join him. She took his hand, and they embraced. Tears welled up in Jorge's eyes. Anani tried not to cry. I didn't want my eyelashes to fall off, she remembered. The only thing that really makes me happy, other than having everyone there, was that I didn't have to worry about my dad being taken. Jorge said his emotions stretched beyond joy. It made me relive both parts, being alone in Mexico and being here. But the most emotional thing, the most beautiful thing, was to be dancing face-to-face with my daughter and having my mother, my mother-in-law, and my wife there, he said. That dance once seemed impossible, one of many things that fell into the abyss wedged between them. It is no longer a dream, Jorge said. Our nightmare is over. Old Johnson & Wales campus dorms in South Park Hill are being turned into income-restricted housing by Kyle Harris. The Urban Land Conservancy's 
massive transformation of the former Johnson and Wales campus into the Mosaic Community Campus in South Park Hill hit a big milestone on Thursday. Nonprofit leaders, financiers, and city and state brass participated in a groundbreaking to celebrate turning four dormitories into 154 units of income-restricted housing. The dorms will be remodeled as a mix of studios for individuals up to three bedrooms for small families. Most units will be for people making between 30% and 60% of the area median income, currently $24,650 to $49,260 for an individual, or $31,650 to $63,300 for a family of three and 10% of them will be reserved for people making below 30% of the median income, currently under $24,650 for an individual or $63,300 for a family of three. The units should begin to be available in 2024. The campus as a whole includes community kitchens from Kitchen Network, the St. Elizabeth School, the Denver School of the Arts, and affordable housing built directly by the Denver Housing Authority. The nonprofit developer Archway Communities, which purchased the dormitories from the Urban Land Conservancy, is heading up this part of the development. Archway's project total budget is $66.5 million, $3.85 million of which came from the city's affordable housing fund, and much of which came through tax credits from the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority. These projects are massive collaborations with multiple for-profit, non-profit, and government entities can, that can take years to assemble. This is not easy work, and we all know this, said Sebastian Corradino, the head of Archway Communities. This particular development included using historic preservation funds and rules, making it all the more complicated but also possibly palatable to the South Park Hill neighborhood and other surrounding communities, which council member Chris Herndon said have offered few criticisms, a rarity when it comes to new development. It's so thrilling to see what Archway is going to do to bring affordability to South Park Hill, taking these historic buildings and making them part of the community, Herndon said. Efforts to build new income-restricted housing and increase density are often pitted against the historic preservation. In this case, both forces worked together. We know that everybody deserves a safe and affordable roof over their head, said Laura Brzezinski, the city's chief housing officer and head of the Department of Housing Stability. This project adds character and beauty to this area, in addition to providing that pathway to stability. So we're excited to not only celebrate this project and the affordable units that are coming, but also the historic renovation underway that this project really helps to celebrate. This groundbreaking and support today for our near opening underscores how historic preservation can also provide much needed affordable housing within our community. The nonprofits board member, Lee Berg, a pastor of the United Church of Christ in Washington Park said, this is a miracle in my world to have this many organizations come together, lean into it, and make it happen. The impact a project like this has on individuals with housing they can afford is huge, yet the dent projects like this put in the overall need is small. After the groundbreaking, David Nisavecchia, head of the Denver Housing Authority, 
told Denverite that roughly 60,000 income-restricted units are currently needed and the demand has risen over the past year. Including the remodeling of the dorms, Denver's Department of Housing Stability is currently funding 1,870 units under construction at 31 separate sites across the city. Another 599 are in the works. The following articles are from the Denver Herald. The Power of One is Anything But Cliché by Jane Dvorak. It takes just the power of one to make a difference. That sounds cliché, yet in reality it is more than true. This is what the work of a CASA volunteer, court-appointed special advocate, does every day. CASAs advocate for children who have suffered abuse and neglect and who are now in our court system by no fault of their own. These children must try to understand fear, trauma, anger, anticipation, disappointment, and the unknown alone. And sometimes at the tender age of four or eight or 14. People say children are resilient. That's true. Yet they still harbor these experiences over a lifetime. It's imperative we as a community and society change that. We must ensure these children have the coping skills and resources to address these challenges and to rise above. We owe that to them and ourselves. It really does take a village to coin another cliché. These are the children who will grow up to work in and run businesses, become community leaders, and sometimes fall to the wayside. It's that last part that has inspired me to be a CASA to 16 children over the past 14 years. As the 2022-2023 Colorado CASA Advocate of the Year, I've had the honor to advocate for children from newborn to young adult. Children who have seen and experienced violence that should never have been part of anyone's life, much less a child's. Sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, domestic violence, addiction, crime, poverty. CASAs help ensure a child's safety, best interests, and well-being. They are a voice for the child and the eyes and ears for the court. They interact with attorneys, caseworkers, educators, and therapists to ensure resources are available so the child can thrive through their situation. We know that youth with a CASA have significantly fewer placements and are less likely to re-enter the child welfare system. They have higher academic performance. They have improved behavior and self-control. They have improved overall well-being they are less likely to turn to delinquency and crime. In Colorado, nearly 5,000 children were served through the 18 CASA programs by nearly 2,000 CASA advocates. Even with these numbers, there are many children navigating these situations without a CASA volunteer. There are five metro area CASA organizations that provide services in Adams, Arapahoe, Boulder, Broomfield, Denver, Douglas, Elbert, Gilpin, Jefferson, and Lincoln counties. These organizations provide a number of additional donated resources like school supplies, holiday gifts, tickets for outings, and gift cards for groceries, retail, and restaurants. It's time to invest in our community's future with a collective power of one. You can be the one. You can give your time and be a voice for these children, can be a champion and cheerleader. We all need one at some point, especially a child. You can build their confidence and self-worth. You can be a role model. 
You can make a difference in the future of our community by lifting these children up, guiding them on their journey, and being the one stable influence in their lives at a critical time of need. We cannot underestimate the power one person can have, especially for our most vulnerable children. That's essential in anything but cliché. Jane Dvorak is the 2022-2023 Colorado Casa of the Year. Soil Health at Chatfield Farms by Rutger Myers. Farmers do everything. They are mechanics, botanists, naturalists, athletes, and some even believe themselves to be meteorologists. In the age of the regenerative agriculture movement, farmers need to become biologists, or more specifically, soil ecologists. Soil ecology is a study of the seemingly limitless universe beneath our feet. In just a teaspoon of healthy soil, there are over one billion bacterial individuals and more than six miles of fungal mycelium. It would take seven years to recite the names of all the bacterial species in a compost pile. How do the trillions of soil microbes interact? It's likely we'll never know. A broad understanding of the soil ecosystem, however, can change a farmer's mindset. The most productive soil in the world from an old-growth forest contains far less plant-available nutrients than are recommended for agricultural soil. How could nutrient-deficient soil, teeming with soil microbes, produce the largest plants on the planet? Nutrients are released when microscopic predators consume bacteria. Nematodes, protozoa, and microscopic insects poop out nutrients that plants are able to consume. Plant roots absorb these nutrients through a web of fungi. Fungal networks expand the reach of roots and create highways inside root hairs. As satisfied plants then release exudates, which attract more bacteria and fungi, the cycle continues. Without these characters to play their parts, soil turns into lifeless dirt. Conventional soil management has disrupted the soil ecosystem. Without microscopic predators, bacteria, or fungi to assist plant roots, farmers are forced to overfeed plants with fertilizers. The excess nutrients that aren't washed away are consumed by a monoculture of bacteria, reproducing rapidly and unchecked by predators. Without predators to consume bacteria, the soil ecosystem becomes unbalanced. The resulting population of disease-carrying bacteria release greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Realistically, not all farmers have the time to study microscopy. Through the eyes of a microscope, a farmer can witness the soil ecosystem in action, but studying soil ecology doesn't require a microscope. Diversity in critters, worms, ladybugs, roly-polies, etc., is an indication of a balanced biology. Even without a microscope, understanding what healthy soil looks, feels, and smells like can inform better practices. Undisturbed soil will evolve with its plant inhabitants. Rich brown textured soil that smells like a forest will feed a vegetable plant on its own without nutrient additives. A calculated less is more soil management approach gives our soil a chance to breathe. Regenerative agriculture redefines the farmer's relationship with nature. Humans' senses have evolved with plants. 
The smell of healthy soil triggers serotonin production in the human brain. Alternatively, our negative reaction to the putrid smell of greenhouse gases produced by harmful bacteria warn us of toxicity. These fine-tuned deep intuitions can become regenerative farmer's almanac. By working in tandem with natural soil ecosystems, farmers can reduce the labor and expenses of disruptive soil tillage and chemical fertilizer application. Soil naturally wants to grow plants. By accepting help from nature, farmers can grow healthier plants more efficiently. Who are we? by Bruce Goldberg. Social studies teacher Kelly Savancier was determined to create a comprehensive curriculum that paid tribute to the dozens of women enshrined in the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. Savancier teaches AP government, politics, and civics for ninth graders at Bear Creek High School in Lakewood. She's also a cultural partner of National History Day Colorado, something she's been involved with since 1995. National History Day is a nonprofit education organization that exists to improve the teaching and learning of history. I think holistically, our students need to be challenged by something more than a sit and learn experience, Savancier said. We need to make education personal as well as make it relevant. The result of her, of her determination is a well-researched, highly informative curriculum that the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame, in partnership with the University of Colorado Denver and the Colorado Student Leaders Institute, unveiled in March. Called Who Are We?, the curriculum serves to educate people about what makes Colorado Women's Hall of Fame inductees worthy of entering the hall and to explain who they are. It is meant to grab the attention of and serve as a resource for students, teachers, and anyone with an interest in Colorado history. It's our hope that who we are will inspire future generations to recognize the important role of women in shaping history and encourage them to become leaders in their own right, said Barb Beckner, chair of the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame, in a news release. The curriculum is available online as a free downloadable PDF for everyone, including schools and educators in Colorado. It's aligned to the latest set of Colorado Social Studies standards and includes lessons, suggested readings, and project-based learning assignments for grade K-12. through I wrote it for K-12 through teachers because the lessons in the curriculum are to teach about a Colorado woman at every grade level, Savancier said. Celeste Archer, who serves as the executive director of National History Day Colorado, told Savancier that many high school students in Colorado needed to create a capstone social studies project specific to Colorado in order to graduate from high school. The curriculum can assist with such graduation capstone experiences and can offer students of any grade level the opportunity to study an exemplar from our own state, Savancier said. History makes a personal connection to each of our kids, Sam Vancier said. They can say, oh, that person lives down the road from me. I can be like her. Project-based learning that is close to home is the key to engage our students. Additionally, through the many partnerships that National History Day has, not-for-profit groups can have students use the relevant history of an organization to complete projects. 
Wings Over the Rockies is just one of those not-for-profit groups. So, kids who do projects on aviators or aircraft have somewhere to go to access primary source materials, Savantsir said. This inspired resource shines a light on a phenomenal group of female changemakers in the state of Colorado, Archer said in a news release, and it provides a wonderful opportunity for Colorado students to get to know these trailblazers in the classroom in a more meaningful way than they have ever before. Getting Jazzy by Christy Stedman When saxophone player Rico Jones was just 14 years old, he got to jam alongside drummer Tom Tilton and jazz pianist Joe Bonner at Brother Jeff's Cultural Center in Denver's Five Points neighborhood. Joe had performed with artists like Woody Shaw and Pharaoh Sanders, Jones said. It was one of the first times I was so close to the authentic lineage of the music. I was beyond inspired. That was 2012. Today, Jones, a Latin indigenous artist who was born and raised in Denver, has been recognized with more than 10 national awards. He is one of about 40 musical artists slated to perform at this year's Five Points Jazz Festival. The event runs from noon to 8 p.m. on June 10th. It will feature 10 indoor and outdoor stages along Welton Street between 25th and 29th Streets. The day kicks off with a parade led by the Guerrilla Fanfare Brass Band. Attendees will also find food vendors, a kid's zone, and artisan booths. People love a great music festival, said Sonia Ray, the cultural affairs program manager for Denver Arts and Venues, which puts on the festival. There's a powerful and rich jazz community here in Denver. Some of the finest local musicians are playing the festival. The festival is free and will feature a variety of jazz genres, Latin jazz, smooth jazz, soul, avant-garde, jazz roots, blues, and more. Tania Wilt Nelson, a pianist with the Denver-based Tania Nelson Trio, or TNT for short, served on this year's Five Points Jazz Festival Selection Committee. Nelson is looking forward to seeing all of the different kinds of bands performing this year, she said, and just being around beautiful people enjoying themselves. People enjoy watching live music because they get to see the bands in real time, interacting with each other, Nelson said. When they see the bands having a great time and playing amazing music, then, of course, they will also have a great time. Now in its 20th year, the festival draws a crowd of roughly 60,000 attendees, but its beginnings were humble. It started out with three bands on one stage in the parking lot of the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library on Welton Street. However, Denver's Five Points is no stranger to jazz. Known as the Harlem of the West, the neighborhood has drawn jazz greats for the better part of a century. Historically, black jazz musicians would come to Denver to perform in white venues. However, they were not allowed to stay in those parts of town because they were black. So they would stay in Five Points. They would stay and play and jam all night long, Ray said. She added it's important to honor the history of jazz in Denver because it tells a story of who Denver is. The history of Denver is alive and well in Five Points, Ray said, and jazz is alive and well in Five Points. Music is something that can bring people of many backgrounds together, Ray said. Those who already love jazz music will certainly enjoy the festival, 
but it's also a good way to introduce people to the local jazz scene. Jazz is a music that is for the people, by the people. People appreciate what is real, genuine, and heartfelt, Jones said. The Five Points Jazz Festival brings that to the people. And best of all, they do it in a historical place where many of the greats of jazz music performed in the early days of the art form. From the Editor Celebrating Reflecting on Graduation Moments by Thelma Grimes The season is here for high school and college students to walk across the stage to get that document saying they are officially ready for the next level. What the next level will be largely depends on what they decide. However, I love this time of year for reflection purposes. At the high school level and to some degree the college level, what these students accomplished is also due to the love and support of family. I remember when I graduated from high school. I was so excited to be one of the first in my family to go to college. I grew up in a family where women mostly stayed home with the kids and worked if they had to. On the male side, most, including my three brothers, went into the military after high school. For me, becoming a journalist was a dream, and I believed I could do anything. I did become a journalist, and I'm definitely proud of what I have accomplished on that level. However, believing I can do anything is something tampered down a bit by life's realities. But those days after high school and college graduation are great feelings of accomplishment in our lives. Moving years down the road, another graduation moment I will always remember is one with my daughter. While she was 16 when her mom died and mostly had me officially adopt her to take my husband's name and get her through her final year of high school, it was challenging. She's struggling to finish school. We struggled together. When she finally walked across that school stage that windy, rainy night in Arizona, she handed me this fake carnation. The rule for the flower was for all graduates to hand it to someone who made an impact in their lives. For her to give it to me after struggling for some time after her mom died and her life changed, I was moved to tears. After giving me the flower, she walked past me and put her arms around my dad's shoulders and they walked away together. That image of pride and happiness will always be embedded in my mind. As so many graduates are taking the steps to the next stage this month, it's time for them to not worry about what the future will hold or how to pay for college, but instead to take a moment and enjoy the accomplishment, be proud of the hard work, and thank those around them for helping them get there. For parents, grandparents, and other family members, smile and take a breath, or just enjoy the importance of the moment without questioning what the future holds. I love graduation season because maybe these ceremonies, parties, and celebrations do force us to reflect a bit more, something we should do all more often in the happy moments of our lives. Thelma Grimes is the South Metro Editor for Colorado Community Media. Ore Diggers Goldenites Honor Marv Kay's Legacy at Public Memorial by Corrine Westerman. To paraphrase the man himself, when the call is sounded for community service, ore diggers and goldenites will always be the first in line. And Marv Kay always was. He'd consistently ask, how can I help? He'd be with a project from beginning to end, the first one there and the last one to leave. His door was always open to anyone in need, even if he didn't know them. 
Now, his friends and family are following his example and carrying on his legacy of kindness and commitment. On May 15th, more than 500 Colorado School of Mines alumni and Golden community members gathered at Mines' Marv K. Stadium to publicly honor their friend. K. died April 19th at the age of 84. He was preceded in death by his wife, Diane, who died March 15th. The two were married for 55 years. As his friend said, Kay was many things to many people. He was Golden's mayor and longtime community leader. He was Mines's beloved football coach and athletic director. He was a friend, a mentor, and number one supporter. As Mines president Paul Johnson described, Kay was the North Star of the Ore Diggers. Dave Scriven, a Mines alumnus who played football for Kay, said his friend and former coach was a visionary who helped shape both Mines and Golden into what they are today. Scriven recalled asking Kay a few years ago if he ever dreamed what the Mines campus and athletic facilities would look like now. Kay said he hadn't, but Scriven was skeptical. You don't build something like this, he said, looking around the stadium and the Mines campus, unless you see it first. Kay was a crucial member of the Golden Civic Foundation and the Colorado School of Mines Foundation, serving on both until he died. Brian Winklebauer of F Mines Foundation said Kay loved being part of the team and particularly shined during the all-staff meetings when he'd share pieces of wisdom with his colleagues. GCF's Heather Schneider said Kay's philosophy was to build the community from the inside out, not the outside in. Yes, he wanted to get the physical projects done, but the real work was getting people involved and emphasizing a service-first mentality among Goldenites. Volunteerism is the price you pay for the space you occupy, she said, quoting Kay. For Golden's Chandra Polk and Kendra Sund, Kay was dad. The sisters grew up going to work for him on the Mines campus, running around the empty gyms and traveling to the football team's away games. Through him, the players became part of their family, and they were always welcomed at the Kay home whenever they couldn't travel for the holidays. They recalled going on road trips as adults when Kay would give them directions to stop by a tunnel, bridge, or road one of his former players had built. Dad loved you all, the sisters told the football alumni and other attendees. During the ceremony, Mines officials announced how the football team will retire number 74, Kay's jersey number when he played for the Ore dig Diggers in the 60s. Redshirt freshman Zach Morris currently wears the number, and the team will permanently retire it once he graduates. As his daughters and friends pointed out, Kay wouldn't want people making a big fuss about him at an event like this. But, no doubt, he would have appreciated seeing so many of his friends in one place and hearing them reminisce about their past adventures together and make plans for new ones. With the torch now passed to the next generation, Kay's friends and family said it's up to ore diggers and goldenites to keep that flame of service burning bright. After all, as Kay himself said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. New Castle Rock Library Nears Completion by McKenna Harford The Castle Rock Library will close on May 22nd as employees work to move inventory to the new location. 
A grand opening for the new location is slated for August 26th. With the interior of the new library around 95% complete, library staff are moving into the 62,000 square foot building at 100 South Wilcox Street, which is located directly in front of the existing facility. From May 22nd to August 26th, neither library building will be open. Additionally, the Archives and Local History Department closed on May 1st. Castle Rock patrons can access all the same library services at other Douglas County locations. Story time and outdoor events will be at substitute locations in town during the closure. On top of transporting the books, magazines, movies, and various media, installation of a sorting machine will take place June 1st. In a news release, Rick O'Dell, Interim Special Projects Manager at Douglas County Libraries, said construction remains on schedule because his team secured materials at the start of the project to avoid supply chain issues caused by the pandemic. We warehouse those materials to avoid the risk of schedule delays due to something potentially sitting on a ship off the coast of California, Odell said. That locked in material prices and allowed us to get ahead of the inflationary curve and availability challenges post-COVID. The new library includes a drive-through book return, a children's playscape, 10 study rooms, five larger meeting spaces, and two outdoor plazas, and space for Douglas County Library's district-wide services teams and the Archives and Local History Department, its collections, and the Sostrom History Lounge Reading Room. Douglas County Libraries contracted with Franson Pittman General Contractors of Inglewood for construction and OPM Architects of Cedar Rapids, Iowa for library design. Demolition of the old building will start on June 17th to make space for the parking lot, which will have 220 spaces for visitors and staff. For ongoing updates, go to dcl.org build. Littleton Mayor Gives State of the City Address by Nina Joss On the morning of May 17th, many of the most prominent people in Littleton gathered in the Bloom Room at the Hudson Gardens and Event Center. From council members to law enforcement officials and school board members to nonprofit leaders, all gathered to learn about the progress Littleton has made since 2022. Mayor Kyle Schlachter took the podium to deliver his second annual State of the City Address. I'm glad you're all here to hear about some of the great things that are going on in the city, he said. Schlachter's address began with a reflection of the ballot measures voters approved in the November election, which permitted the city to implement a lodger's tax and to form a downtown development authority. Revenue from the lodger's tax will support arts and culture in Littleton, Schlachter said. Half of the funds will go toward Tier 1 institutions, including the Littleton Museum, Bemis Public Library, Town Hall Arts Center, and Hudson Gardens. We are really looking at really investing in our community and making sure our citizens and people that visit Littleton really see the great amenities that we have here, he said. A quarter of the lodger's tax revenue will go toward an arts and cultural grant center for organizations that serve Littleton. Applications for these grants are open until June 11th, with funds to be distributed at the start of 2024. 
Other portions of the revenue will fund pu public art, historic preservation, and a tourism campaign, including a new Visit Littleton website, Schlachter said. The Downtown Development Authority, Schlachter said, will be a great partnership and opportunity for the city. We are joining a host of other cities in Colorado that have downtown development authorities, he said. It's a great mechanism to increase revenue and invest back in our downtown. The city council recently approved the authority's plan of development, which outlines the goals of the authority. Schlachter said Littleton's economy is in great shape thanks to the work of the city's economic development team. Our development team is working to bring new businesses to Littleton, working with our partners at Littleton Public Schools, especially with Epic Campus, working with Arapahoe Community College and Arapahoe Doug Douglas Works to develop this really strong workforce pipeline for the whole South Metro area and the whole Denver area, he said. The city is embarking on a comprehensive economic development strategy project which will include upcoming think tank workshops and community feedback sessions for community members to share what's important to them in regards to economic development in Littleton. Schlachter said he's excited about the Littleton Brewing Company, Denver Beer Company, Cherry Cricket, and Black House Tavern, which are all opening in the city in the coming months. He also highlighted the new social bar and lounge in Littleton Village and the pub eats and drinks spot, number 38, which will soon come to the same area. I know the residents of Littleton Village are really eager to have some more options to visit in that location, Schlachter said. In addition to new restaurants and bars, he highlighted several new development projects that are bringing new apartments, an assisted living facility, single-family homes, townhomes, and mixed-use areas to Littleton. It'll be a good mix of new property stock that we also desperately need, he said. On the topic of housing, Schlachter highlighted the work Littleton and its neighbors are doing to address homelessness and create more housing options across the region. We've had a period of rigorous discussion about housing and land use in our state, in our individual communities, he said. I can assure you all of our cities are working hard to do a lot of stuff to address these issues. The Tri-Cities Homelessness Action Plan, a partnership between Littleton, Inglewood, and Sheridan, is taking steps to assist those who are unhoused. He praised their partnerships and programs that assist unhoused veterans and help people achieve employment. He specifically called attention to the Cross-Purpose Career School, which offers professional and career development. He also recognized All Health Path Outreach Team, the Ready to Work program, and the Tri-Cities Homelessness Navigation Center for the work they have done or will soon be doing related to mental health and homelessness. City Council also approved an agreement with All Health Network to begin a dedicated, trauma-informed, client-centered response team for 9-11 calls related to mental and behavioral health. Schlachter also celebrated the Inclusionary Housing Ordinance, with the, which the City Council passed in November. Under this ordinance, all new residential developments in the city with five or more units are required to make at least 5% affordable based on area median income data. If they fail to reach this requirement, a developer could face fines. It's really important that we don't brush affordability under the rug, 
We keep talking about it, keep pushing forward to make sure that we can make Littleton a place where people not only want to live here, but that they can live here, Schlachter said. He said the city has reached out to Governor Jared Polis's office since Housing Bill 23-213 failed in the legislature to see how cities and the state can work together more collaboratively towards future housing solutions. Ballot Measure 3A, passed in 2021, increased sales and use taxes for capital improvement projects in Littleton. This year alone, the city will treat over 50 lane miles, Schlachter said. That's over 14% of our entire street network. One of these projects will be improving the intersection of Santa Fe Drive and Mineral Avenue, which is set to be finished in 2025, according to the city's website. The city is also involved in the Broadway Corridor Study and is preparing to embark on the Downtown Mobility Infrastructure Improvement Project, which will align with a large water main replacement downtown. Schlachter said the city will also be embarking on other public works projects, including a Forestry Master Management Plan and a Water Resources Master Plan. It's great that our city is really thinking, you know, how we're going to look to the future to make sure that our resources are still there for future generations, he said. Littleton approves Downtown Development Authority Plan by Nina Joss. The City Council unanimously approved the Littleton Downtown Development Authority's Plan of Development, moving the quasi-governmental organization along in its formulation process. In 2022, voters approved a ballot measure to allow the formation of the authority and two financing mechanisms to pay for it. The authority's purpose is to help facilitate partnerships between businesses, property owners, and local governments to champion the beautification, development, and improvements of downtown Littleton, according to the authority's website. The plan of development is a guiding document that works as a menu of services for the authority, Assistant City Manager Kathleen Osher said. It sort of governs the opportunity for the authority to say, these are the types of things that we have heard interest from. Here's how we think about short-term, middle-term, and long-term projects that would fit within the type of work that the authority could do, she said. Prior to being presented to council, the city's planning commission unanimously recommended the plan for approval on April 24th. With the guidance of a consultant team, Progressive Urban Management Associates, and input from more than 850 downtown stakeholders and residents, a steering committee created a plan of development to focus on five main goals. It really boiled down to the consensus for five areas, an improved parking experience, a well-connected downtown, beautiful and welcoming downtown, clean and safe and business-friendly and vibrant, Osher said. With each goal area, the plan includes short and long-term project ideas. Some of these include building a parking structure downtown, constructing a pedestrian bridge near, near Powers Avenue, starting a flower program with planters along Main Street, filling vacant storefronts and enhancing alleyways with lights and murals. With the plan of development approved by City Council, the authority will begin to create an operating plan and work with the Arapahoe County Assessor's Office to determine projected revenues and formulate a 2024 budget, said Littleton Downtown Development Authority Director Jenny Starkey. We're at a tipping point, she said. I think the community really wants to hear from the authority, 
what it is that we're up to, what it is that we foresee and forecast for the next couple of months and the next couple of years. There will also be a public hearing to amend the authority's current budget to reflect a city council's April 4th decision to join an intergovernmental agreement with the authority, Osher wrote. This agreement provided $180,000 in American Rescue Plan funds to the authority to support its formation. Formation activities will continue for the rest of the year, Osher wrote. The tax increment financing and mill levy approved by voters to support the authority are anticipated to go into effect in the second quarter of 2024, according to city documents. Castle Rock likely to increase parking for multifamily developments by McKenna Harford. Castle Rock is moving forward with increasing parking requirements for multifamily developments. Town Council directed staff at the May 16th meeting to draft an ordinance that would require multifamily parking requirements to have at least two spaces per unit, as well as 1.1 spaces per unit for senior multifamily and 1.25 spaces per unit for downtown multifamily developments. Currently, the town requires multifamily projects to include one parking space per studio, one and a half parking spaces per one bedroom units, and two parking spaces for two or three bedroom units, as well as one extra guest space for every four units. Senior and downtown multifamily developments are required to have one space per unit. In recent discussions, a majority of council members have expressed concerns with the town not having enough parking to meet demand, particularly in mixed-use areas like downtown and the Meadows Town Center. We hear loud and clear that there are some places that are hard to park, Mayor Jason Gray said. We want to be reactive, but we won't, don't want to be overreactive. Town staff recommended a modest increase for multifamily development that would get rid of the bedroom-based requirements. Instead, the town will require two spaces per unit regardless of size. For a 200-unit multifamily project, Staff said the changes would increase the total needed parking from 393 spaces to 400 spaces. Feedback from developers indicates an average need of 1.25 to 1.5 parking spaces per unit. However, many council members said that they didn't think the proposed two spaces per unit requirement would be enough. Council member Loris Cavey suggested going to 2.15 or 2.25 spaces per unit. To me, two spaces per unit doesn't seem like enough, KB said. I mean, seven additional spaces. I don't know if that's going to garner much help. KV called the increases future-proofing for potential density issues. Overall, the council was amenable to the staff-recommended increases, which will be voted on at a future meeting. The parking changes will also be reviewed and voted on by the Planning Commission. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.